Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, um, just go ahead and slip your hand up. One of our ushers will make their way over there and make sure you got a copy so you can follow along. All right. Got one over here. Ushers. All right. Couple. Okay. Galatians chapter 2. And what a blessing it is to have the Bible. Amen? And to have our own personal copies of the Bible. I mean, whether it's a, a paperback copy or you got a hardback or maybe you're this, this leather bound or maybe this morning you're following along on your smartphone or your tablet. But we are, we are so blessed to have the Word of God so easily accessible to us. That's not something that everyone down through history has enjoyed. Amen? We're blessed. And we're also blessed to have these little um, address markers, these little chapter and verse markers in our Bible. It's really helpful for me to be able to say to you this morning, turn to Galatians chapter 2, and you know that you need to turn to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the beginning of the second chapter. Those little location markers, that little address, makes it so much easier to discuss and to teach the Bible. We can all hone in on a specific section and know that we're all on the same section. They're a blessing. But as I say that about those chapter and verse markings, I also need to acknowledge that, yes, they're a blessing, but they can also be a hindrance to us as we study the Bible. Uh, Those little chapter and verse markings are very helpful for getting us to the same location, but they can become a hindrance to us if they begin to dictate the way that we read and approach the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. Sometimes people approach the Bible like it was written in chapter and verse. Like the original author sat down and put together this this collection of spiritual platitudes into these pithy little sayings. They they approached the Bible like the Apostle Paul sat there and thinking, "Now, now what should I write for this next verse? What should I write down so that they can copy and paste and put it on social media Or write it on a three-by-five note card and put it in their back pocket. But Paul nor the other authors wrote that way. said those chapter and verse markers that we have in our Bible, those were added later. And they were added to help us navigate around the Bible so that we can literally get on the same page. Now, I want to be clear. As I say that, I don't have a problem with people sharing a verse up on social media, putting a verse on Facebook. I don't have a problem with people writing on a three-by-five note card and putting it in their pocket and carrying it around them. But the problem is... If we begin to approach the Bible like it's just this collection of pithy little wisdom sayings, like it's just a bunch of spiritual fortune cookies organized into these verses, then we're approaching the Bible the wrong way. We're approaching the Bible the wrong way. We're we're not reading it as it was written. We're not reading it as it was meant to be read. You see, the Bible is actually one big story. And it's meant to be read that way. And the story begins... Back in Genesis, with man and woman created to be in fellowship with God. But then something happened, right? What happened? Yeah, rebellion. They turned from God in his good ways. They turned from that fellowship with him, and they fell. And we all fell with them into sin. Fell into judgment. Relationship with God and with one another is broken. Our sin separated us from that, that harmony with God and with his world that we were created to enjoy. That's how the story Starts, And the story ends in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, with everything that's been a mess restored. 
The final chapters of the Bible show us everything as it should be. God dwelling with humanity, the universe of peace, harmony reestablished. The story ends by showing us this glorious picture of the redemption of fallen humanity. So that's, that's the big story of the Bible. There's this big story of redemption. But in all of the pages in between those two bookends, those crucial bookends, Genesis and Revelation, and all the pages in between, all the chapters and verses in between, we, we witness two parallel truths. Two, two truths running right alongside each other. And, and they're both there. They're both there throughout the entirety of the story. They're in all the chapters, all the verses that we find in the pages of this book that is the Bible. And one of those truths, one of those truths is the reality of our failure. The reality of our failure. Page after page after page of the Bible shows us that we fail. We fail to remedy. We fail to fix. We, we fail to overcome the mess that we have created. From Genesis 3 onward, that's the story. Humanity is unable to restore this relationship that we've broken with our holy creator, nor the mess that we've made out of our relationships with each other. We are sinners. We are sinners who, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many religious activities or rules we throw at the situation, we can't seem to fix it. The Bible is one big story of our repeated failure to undo what we've done. But right alongside that theme, running all the way from cover to cover in the Bible, right alongside that theme, there's another theme, another truth, a glorious truth. And that truth that is, is that in spite of our failure, God has a plan. God has a plan. And, and here's the thing. That plan is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon our worthiness nor our success. It's dependent upon who? Only three of us got it this morning. It's dependent upon God. Praise God. It's all dependent upon him. It's God's plan. So from cover to cover, you see that. The execution of this plan, ultimately, it rests with God. Those two themes, our failure, God's plan. Cover to cover. And at the center of the Bible, those two themes, our inability and God's unstoppable plan, they come together in a person. They come together in a person. And that, that person is actually the center of this story of the Bible. He, he's the fulcrum on which the story of redemption turns. And his coming is predicted and pictured and foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. And all of those stories about humanity's foolishness and humanity's failure, our foolishness and our failure, all those stories, they keep pushing us forward to him, to his coming. And when he does come, he does what we failed to do. He deals with our sin, and he overcomes the mess that we've made. He comes and he, he lives the life that each and every one of us have failed to live, a life of obedience, a life in harmony with God and his design, a holy life. But here's the thing. He doesn't simply live that life as an example for us. He actually lived in our place. He lived a holy life to give that to us, to give us his life in order to cover our sin, our failure, our shame. He gives it to us so that we might be clothed with that righteousness, that righteousness that we need in order to be restored to a right relationship, a relationship of peace with God. But here's the thing. His coming wasn't just to live for us. He was actually born to die. 
for us, born to die for us. He was, as the New Testament tells us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who took our judgment. He paid the price for our rebellion against God, our rebellion against God's sovereign authority over our life. He, he paid the price for that. He died so that all of our sin, past, present, and future, would be atoned for, would be washed away. And he did actually atone for it. That truth is made clear by the fact that he's not still paying for our sin. On the third day, he rose from the dead, making clear both who he is and what he'd accomplished. He is God the Son, Jesus the Messiah, the promised Savior, the Lord, the center of the story of the Bible. And his resurrection is the declaration that he accomplished what we never could. Dealing with our sin, dealing with our shame, overcoming death. And one day he's coming back. And he's coming back to bring to completion what was inaugurated in that resurrection. One day, because of what Jesus has done, he's going to come back and everything's going to be as it should be. That's what Revelation tells us. Everything's going to be as it should be. That's what the Bible is really all about. That's the story that all of these chapters and verses, they're all working together to tell us that story. So my point is, this is not some disconnected spiritual collection of fortune cookies given to us for some kind of occasional inspiration. No, they're, they're all part of one story. They're all part of one meta-narrative of redemption. Redemption accomplished not through us, but for us, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But as I say that, throughout that meta-narrative of the Bible, that big story of the Bible, we find smaller narratives. We find stories within the story. And these stories show us what it looks like for people like you and me to embrace that meta-narrative. Throughout the Bible, we find these, these windows that we look through, and we get to watch what it looks like for people like you and me to embrace this story, this true story, this reality of redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ. We're given these, these glimpses into what happened in the lives of real everyday people when, when the center of the story intersected with their lives. And what we see is we see how they struggled. We see how they changed. We see how their lives and their world was transformed as they embraced this redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ. We find these little windows all throughout Scripture, windows into a different time, into a a different culture, windows into a different place. But as we look through those windows, what I want you to understand is the people that we see, guess what they look like? They look like us. They look like us. Now, now they might have spoken a different language and lived in a different culture, but, but they look very much like us. And we get to watch. We get to watch how the center of the story changed their story. How it transformed their real, everyday lives. And I bring all of that up this morning because that's what we find here in the book of Galatians. That's what we find here in the book of Galatians. Here in Galatians, we find a window through which we get to look and see the reality of first century Christianity. And as we look through this window, we get to see how both they, they struggled, they struggled, and how they also learned to live in light of what Jesus Christ had accomplished. They, they struggled to understand and live out the reality of the gospel. 
And God has given us this truth. These, these chapters and verses that make up the book of Galatians, he's given it to us, not just so that we can see that, but so that we too, watching them, can learn how to live these things out in our lives. As we look through this window, we get to see what does it look like and what does that teach us about what it should look like in our lives. This is not the book of Galatians or any other book in the scriptures, not simply a collection of spiritual platitudes. This is God's word given to us to help us learn how to live life in light of the salvation accomplished through Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the book of Galatians. Now let me remind you of how this book opens. We began studying this book of Galatians last fall. We put it on hold for the holidays, so it's been a little bit of time. So let me just remind you of how the book opens. Back in chapter 1 of this letter, we saw these folks to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. Again, this is a letter. It was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in this Roman province of Galatia. But, But these people to whom Paul was writing this letter, they were struggling. They were struggling to understand exactly how the coming of Jesus, how that had changed things. You see, for them, instead of realizing that the Old Testament law was there to expose our failure and point us to Christ, which is why it's there, to expose our failure and point us to Christ, some of the folks there in Galatians thought the old system was something they needed to keep on doing. They thought they needed it as an add-on to what Jesus Christ had already done. So the way they were seeing redemption, they were seeing it as kind of a group effort, a tag team effort. They thought, well, Jesus has come. He's come to do some of the work of redemption. He's come to do like the heavy lifting. But then you need to add in a bunch of your own works to somehow seal the deal. They believed that they needed to keep a bunch of Old Testament rules, Old Testament law, rules like circumcision in order to truly please God, in order to truly be part of the people of God. And and they'd come to this belief because of some bad teaching that they had received. Jewish Christian teachers had come into these churches, these churches who were primarily made up of non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And these teachers had told them that you need to become Jewish in order to truly become Christian. They argued you need to place yourself under the the Jewish law, in order to receive the blessings of Jesus because he's the Jewish Messiah. That's what they were teaching these folks. Um, But as we saw in chapter 1, Paul isn't having any of that foolishness. He's not having any of that silliness. He makes it clear that such a teaching, you need to put yourself under the law and do all these things in order to receive the blessing of Christ, that that's no gospel at all. He also actually calls it a damnable gospel because that's a gospel that cannot save you. It's a different gospel. You see... Paul understood the coming of Jesus. And he understood our absolute inability to fix anything by the things that we do. See, Paul understood the big story of the Bible. So he knew Jesus Christ is our only hope. Cover to cover. Show us it's not stuff we can do. We fail. We need Jesus. Amen? He's our only hope. And so Paul understood that. He understood that it's not Jesus plus our good works. It's not Jesus plus our religious rule keeping. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not in me and my ability, but in Christ alone. That's our only hope. Paul understood that. So he begins to remind the Galatians of that truth. And he begins to remind them of that truth by reminding them of his own story. In the bulk of chapter 1, we find the testimony of the apostle Paul. And what we see in his testimony is we... We get, again, this window that we get to look through, and we get to see the life of this first century religious man. 
And what we see in Paul's testimony is when he was this, this zealous religious man, that, that zeal for religion, it led him to a bad place. It led him to become self-righteous. It led him to become violent. He was like, we looked at it, he was like a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was going around and putting people in jail and actually killing the people of God. Paul was a zealous Jew who was zealously wrong. He shares that with us. But then the, the center of the story intersects with his story. And everything changed in Paul's life. The goal, the purpose, the power, the reality of Paul's life dramatically changed. And here's the thing. His life changed not because he added a bunch of new religious rules. His life changed because he came face to face with his own inability, his own failure. And he saw that his only hope was the center of his story. His only hope was Jesus Christ. Paul embraced the gospel and everything changed. And he makes that point in chapter 1. But here's the thing. It didn't just change Paul in isolation. And, and it didn't just change him in his relationship with God. It changed him in his relationships with other people. And that's what chapter 2 begins to focus upon. As we now come into chapter 2 of our study and we continue to look through this window, we're going to see how the, the center of the story, this redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ, how the center of the story affected the way these first century people related to each other how it affected the way that they related to each other. And what we find is that the gospel, the message at the center of the story, both, both built and also protected, it maintained, it defended a new community. It both built the gospel, both built and protected a new community. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 2. We're going to see how this message at the center of the story worked itself out in those first century relationships. What we're going to see is we're going to see the gospel in community. The gospel in community. And as, as we see this, brothers and sisters, as we look through this window, I, I want you to think with me about all of us and our lives together. I want us to think about how the message at the center of this story works itself out in our relationships with each other. I want us to think about how the gospel is building this community of believers and also how it protects, how it defends, how it maintains this community of believers. And here's the thing. I want you to think specifically, what I want you to think about specifically, is how all of that is happening. How the gospel is building and defending community, how it's doing all of this stuff in and through you. Not, not just us, but you as an individual. How is this happening in and through you? How is the, the center of this story of the Bible and really the center of human history? But how is it working itself out in your relationships with other people? That's what we're going to unpack and explore as we begin to work through what Paul writes here in Galatians chapter 2. That's where we're going this morning and in the weeks ahead. We're not, we're not going to be flying through this big surprise, right? <laughs> So, so let's dig into this. Let's start with what Paul shows us here about how the gospel builds community. How the gospel builds community. Look at the text. Here. Beginning of verse 1, Paul 
Paul tells us the story of some events in his life. And here's the thing. These events, I think, properly understood, give us a glimpse at how the gospel builds community. These events that he tells us about, properly understood, they give us a glimpse of what we're talking about this morning, how the gospel builds community. So look at what Paul writes. Look at verse 1. He tells us, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Let's stop there. Now, now remember... Paul did not write this letter in chapter and verse. Uh, those things were added later. So Paul is just, he's just continuing talking about what he was talking about in chapter 1. He's just continuing to share his testimony. And he already told us previously in chapter 1 about this trip that he took to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 1, he said three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. Remember why he went there? Went to find somebody, hang out with them. Remember who it was? Yeah, the Apostle Peter. He spent 15 days hanging out with the Apostle Peter. And again, we talked about what, be a fly on the wall of that 15 days. That would have been amazing to watch those two men talk. But... He went there, but then here he tells us uh, he went back. After 14 years, Paul said, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, because of the way that Paul words things here, uh, we're not sure if he's saying 14 years after my initial conversion, I went back, or 14 years after my last visit, I went back. Could be either way. Having said that, though, the, the when is not as important as the why. Why, after 14 years, did Paul return? What does it say here in the text? Verse 2, what does it say? I went up because of a what? Revelation. Revelation. And most likely, what that is referring to is an event in Paul's life recorded for us over in the book of Acts chapter 11. So, we'll go back to Galatians in a moment, but turn over to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11. And, And what I want you to see here this morning is is that Paul's trip back to Jerusalem shows us some of how the gospel built community in that first century culture. This trip, and specifically the reason for it, shows us some of how the gospel works itself out in our relationships with each other. So Acts chapter 11, you there? All right. Let's jump into verse 27. Acts 11, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. And you need to understand, everybody comes down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill. So even though they're headed north, they're still coming down. So now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem, from the church in Jerusalem to Antioch. Church, actually, in the city of Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, the, the Roman Empire. And this took place in the days of Claudius, who was a Roman emperor. Verse 29, so the disciples, the Christians in Antioch, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to, his, to the brothers, the Christians, living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who we also know as Paul. Paul. And so that's why Paul went to Jerusalem. That's the revelation that he's talking about there in Galatians chapter 2. He's describing a mission of mercy from the church in Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. That this mission of mercy took place at all is a pretty amazing thing. It's a pretty amazing thing. And and that would have been obvious to Paul's original readers of the the letter to the Galatians. But it's not 
obvious to us why that was such an amazing thing. So let me take a few moments to help you understand why this was such an amazing thing. If you're still there in Acts chapter 11, look back a few verses. Look at the description of how (coughs) the church there in Antioch got started. Go back to verse 19. Follow along as I read starting in verse 19. Now, those, those Christians, who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, the gospel message to no one except who? Except Jews. So here what we're reading about is these early Christians who are scattered from Judea. There's been persecution of Christians that's arisen because of the martyrdom of Stephen. And they've been scattered out of Judea, which was the area around Jerusalem. And as they go, they're still preaching the gospel. However, they're only sharing it with their fellow Jews. And that, that was... Up to that point, that was kind of the MO for most of the people in the church. They were preaching Jesus, the Messiah, God's plan of salvation, the center of the story, but they are only preaching it to Jewish people. They're only preaching this message to people who were like them, culturally, religiously like them. But then something changed in Antioch. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, some of these Jewish Christians who had been scattered, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also, that is, they started sharing the gospel with Greek-speaking people, uh, Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. That's what that term Hellenist means. Spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So, so that's how the church in Antioch got started. A bunch of Jewish Christians reach out to non-Jewish people, and they preached the story to them. The story of redemption centered in Jesus. And these non-Jewish people embraced it. And they formed a church together. And they all worshiped together. These people from different backgrounds and different cultures. But they were all united in Christ. Because same story working itself out in their lives. And then these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Again, where these original people that were preaching the gospel had come from. They continued to reach out to the church. This new church in Antioch. Look at verse 22. The report of this. These people, all these non-Jewish people getting saved in Antioch. It came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, also known as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where we get that term from. And so these folks in Antioch, these followers of Christ, these primarily Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, they then sent out this mission of mercy to these Jewish Christians, these Jewish brothers and sisters living in Jerusalem. But what I want you to understand is that was not a normal thing. That was not a normal thing. That was not typical behavior in that culture. Typically, Jews and non-Jewish people, they didn't really have anything to do with each other, at least anything nice to do with each other. Instead, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, often persecuted the Jews. And the Jewish people viewed the non-Jews, the Gentiles, as vile, unclean, beneath them. There was a lot of racism uh, in that culture. They viewed the the Gentiles as worthless dogs. They're vile. They're foolish. They just leave them in their depravity. So normally the relationship between these two cultures was one of hostility. 
But what I want you to understand, that's not what we're seeing here. And that's not what Paul is describing in Galatians chapter 2. He's describing this mission of mercy where these Gentile Christians in Antioch sacrificially give to help meet the needs of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And what I want you to understand is that they were doing that because of the message at the center of the story. They were doing that because of the message at the center of the story. They were doing that because of the gospel. You see, the gospel often connects the most unlikely people. The gospel often connects the most unlikely people. The gospel builds a a new community out of connecting unlikely people, people with different backgrounds, people with different ethnicities, people with different amounts in their bank account, people with different religious experiences. The gospel brings them together. Now, normally, think about this. Normally, we build connections with one another based on a lot of, I'll call external characteristics, right? We build connections with people based on a lot of external characteristics. We look for people who look like us. We, we find people who have the same hobbies as we do. We find people who shop at the same stores as we, oh, I go to Target, well, I go to Walmart. Or we look for people, you know, well, they have kids at the same stage as I do. And those are the people, I'm going to be honest, those are people we often choose to hang out with. Those are the people, because those are the people we, we connect with. We have the same stage of life. They look like me, or they shop where I do, or whatever. They have the same hobbies. That's often what becomes our community. But here's the thing. The gospel calls us to find our connection, our community, in something so much deeper than those external things. You see, our connection is supposed to be about more than the color of our skin or the amount on our paycheck, or our marital status. Instead, here's the thing. When we see the gospel for what it is, when we see the reality of this story, we understand that we have a connection with each other that's deeper than all of those other things. Amen? We have this deep connection. We connect with other people because we've all seen the emptiness of hoping in us. We've sinned. We can't fix it. We've come to understand that. And we now realize that our only hope is the grace of God manifested in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that truth makes us one. Makes us one. The truth that we are, we're all sinners saved by grace that builds us into a community, a community of unlikely people. People who normally wouldn't connect. It builds us into a community, and in this new community created by the gospel, this deep truth that unites us all, that truth, the truth of the gospel, it moves us then to love like we've been loved, right? It moves us to love each other like we've been loved. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who removes all that judgment and sin that was hanging over our head. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The center of the story. That's love. God loved us when we were a bunch of sinners. And then John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. In other words, if God showed us love in spite of us, we also ought to show that same kind of love to each other, right? Sacrificial love, no strings attached kind of love. We don't just love each other because, well, you look like me or you like the things that I like, so I'm going to love you. It's not the way it works. 
We love each other because the gospel makes us one, and then it moves us to love, sacrificially, one another. And it also moves us to give. That's what was going on there in Antioch. Look, at, look again at the text. Acts 11, verse 29, it says that they all gave out of their ability. They saw their connection with these brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. And it was a connection, not based on culture, because they were a different culture. But it was a connection rooted in the gospel. And, and that connection moved them to give. It moved them to send help. It moved them to send relief. It pushed them beyond themselves to focus upon the needs of others. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. It helps, it, it builds community. It connects us with people who might not look like us. People with whom we might not share those, those superficial connections. But we share Christ, so it connects us. And then it, it connects us, and then it moves us to love them and to serve them. That, that's, brothers and sisters, that's what we're seeing as we look through this window. That's what we're seeing. That's the way the story was working itself out in their stories. That's what we see. That's the way it was working itself out in their story. But what about in you? Let me ask it this way. What about in your story? Think, think with me about this. Again, I, I want us to get personal here. What about in your story? Let me ask it this way. Do you find yourself only connecting with people who look like you? Only, who only have that? Well, they have, their kids are at the same stage as mine, so we're close. People who fall in the same tax bracket as you. Or, or, do you see yourself connecting with people who, who superficially might be different than you? But you share the most important thing. You've come to see that you're sinners saved by grace alone. You find yourself connecting with people like that. And, and you say, oh, yeah, Ryan, maybe a little. Do you find yourself then moved to love them? People that, that, again, on surface level, you might not have a lot of connection with, but you are moved to love them and not just love them in a general, vague way, but a deep, sacrificial way. Do you find yourself quick to give to them? Give them your time. Give them your care. Give them your concern. Give them your listening ear. Do people need that? You better believe they do. To give to them those things as well as out of your economic resources. Do you find yourself giving and loving people the way that Jesus gives and loves you? Again, that's what we're seeing here in the first century. That's how the center of the story was working itself out. And I, I say this all the time and I say it again. This really happened. As we look through these windows, we are seeing real people in real lives. This is the way the story was working itself out in their story. But what about in yours? What about in your story? What about in our story? Are we letting the gospel build community among us? Or are we looking to other things to do that? You know, what we look like, how much money we make, where we shop, what stage of life we're in. I think it's an important question for us to ask as we look through this window. Are we letting the gospel connect us to unlikely people, move us to love and serve and give our brothers and, to our brothers and sisters in Christ? That, that's what we see in Paul's mission of mercy from Antioch to Jerusalem. That's not all that we see. 
Back in Galatians chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there. We're going to hang out in Acts here for a moment. But back in Galatians chapter 2, Paul mentions a couple of people who went with him on that trip from Antioch to Jerusalem. He mentions a guy named Barnabas and another guy named Titus. And, and in our time remaining this morning, I want to talk a little bit about one of those guys. I want to talk about this guy, Barnabas. And his life, this, this guy who is mentioned, Barnabas, as we, as we look through this window, that is Galatians chapter 2, I think his life shows us more about how the gospel builds community. So I want to talk a little bit about Barnabas. And I want you to understand a little bit about who Barnabas was. Barnabas was one of the first. He was part of the, the early church. We read about him in the early chapters of Acts. And he might have actually even been part of Jesus' earthly ministry. There are some historians who say that he was part of the seventy. That Jesus sent out. We don't know that for sure. But he was there in those early, early days. And he was a man um, transformed by the gospel. The center of the story had intersected with his story in a very powerful way. Um, see, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us that Barnabas's name wasn't actually Barnabas. His name was actually Joseph. But people had stopped calling him Joseph and they started calling him Barnabas. The people in the church had stopped calling him Joseph and started calling him Barnabas. And they take him to calling him Barnabas because that name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. That's the name actually that the apostles had given him. Oh, here he comes, this one born to encourage. Son of encouragement. That, that's how he changed. That's how he knew how, how he, how, who he now was. He was this son of encouragement. This is his new name. And that's the way he was to the church. That's the way he was part of that community. He was the encourager. But what I want you to understand about Barnabas, he, was, he wasn't just out there encouraging people with words. Now, we need that. But he wasn't just encouraging people with words. Turn over for a moment. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And, and here's Acts chapter 4. It's the first thing we ever read about Barnabas. This is our initial introduction to this guy. And look at what we see in this initial introduction to Barnabas. Acts chapter 4. And let's start in verse 32. Now, the full number of those, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyrus, Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here we get to look through another one of these windows, right? And what we see is this powerful picture of community. See, these, these early Christians realized that, that their greatest need had been met by the love and generosity of God, so they turned with that same love and generosity towards one another. And Barnabas, he was at the center of it. Here he is used by Luke, the author of Acts, as an example of this loving, giving community. Barnabas was this this transformed man who was an encouragement to others, not just by words, but by loving and sacrificially giving 
uh, to meet the needs of others, these sacrificial giving actions. And here's the thing. This became characteristic of Barnabas's life. As we saw earlier there in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was the guy who was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to help get that new church on its feet. And then he went and he got Paul and brought Paul back. And together they served and they ministered in that church. And then he partnered with Paul. He went with Paul to bring this financial gift from Antioch to Jerusalem. And he also traveled with Paul on Paul's first missionary journey, a journey in which they together planted churches, guess where? In the region of Galatia, these churches to whom Paul is writing this letter. So Barnabas, what we see in scriptures, Barnabas was a man who spent his life for other people. He spent his life for other people. He was a man changed by the gospel, and that change was overflowing into the lives of other people. He was used by God to help build, to strengthen, to encourage Christian relationships. He was used by God to to build, to encourage Christian community, community around the gospel. Now, as we get further into Galatians chapter 2, what we'll see is this Barnabas wasn't a perfect guy. We're actually going to read about a time where he, he blew it and kind of big. But I'll say it this way. That's good news because it shows us the guy isn't looking for perfect people. Amen? He isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who are willing, people changed by the gospel and willing to let that change overflow their lives into the lives of others. And that was the kind of guy that Barnabas was. And I bring all this up to say that's the kind of people that we need. That's the kind of people that we need. The gospel builds community through Barnabases. People like Barnabas. That's what we see as we look through the, the window of Scripture. We observe this first Christian, century Christianity as we see people like Barnabas. We see God using those people to build community. And guess what, brothers and sisters? We need those same kind of people today in this church. It's part of how the gospel is building community among us. We need people who have been changed I mean, really changed by the gospel. We need people who have a a new name, so to speak. People who who maybe used to be greedy, self-absorbed, deceptive. Now there's been a change. Now generous. They're others-focused. They speak the truth in love. They're different. We need people who aren't perfect, but who are willing and ready. Willing to help ready to go, eager to serve, faithful to love and humbly come alongside other people, helping build relationships, helping strengthen relationships, giving us a living, breathing example of how the gospel overflows people's lives and connects us together. We need living. We can talk about this stuff a lot, but we need people who are living, breathing examples of this. I'll say this lovingly. This is an admonition. Don't complain about it. Be the change. Amen? Be the change. We need Barnabases. We need sons and daughters of encouragement. That's part of how the gospel builds community. So let me ask you this very pointed question. Are you a Barnabas? Are you a Barnabas? And, and let's not make that too elaborate. But here's simply what it means. Has the gospel changed you? Has the gospel, can I get an amen if it has? Has the gospel changed you? It's changed you. So if the gospel has changed you, are, are, 
are you letting that overflow your life into the lives of other people? Has, has the, the story intersected with your story in a way that others see and it impacts their life? Are you willing, eager, ready to serve, give, and love? Or are you hoarding those things? You know what I mean? Are you hoarding those things? Are you just living life for you? For what you can gain? What you can keep? What you can build? Remember the guy who tore down his barn to build bigger barns? How'd that work out for him? Not very well. But if you are living life for only what you can gain, what you can keep, what you can build, let me just say it this way. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not the reality at the heart of this story. That's not anything like the reality at the heart of this story. Amen? It's not anything like Jesus. And that kind of living, living it only for us, that kind of image will, will damage this community, not build it up. Not build it up. You see, as the gospel builds community, there are things that come along things that are out of harmony with the center of this story, and they attack that new community. As the gospel builds this community, there are things that come along, things that are out of harmony with the center of the story. They don't resonate with the Jesus, <laughs> and they attack this new community. There are things that are discordant, if I could put it that way, with the gospel, that threaten the gospel community. And that's also what we see in Galatians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn back there. Don't worry, I'm going to wrap up with this, okay? I'm not going to be here for another 45 minutes, just another 30. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but I'll wrap up with this. <clears throat> the bulk of what Galatians chapter 2 is about is not simply gospel community. The bulk of what it is about is that gospel community, that community built by the gospel, under attack. Under attack. That, that's really what Paul's showing us here as we look through this window of Galatians chapter 2. He's showing us how this community built by the gospel, a community where unlikely people, Jews and Gentiles, were connected by the gospel and where they loved each other and they served each other like a bunch of Barnabases. He's showing us how that came under attack. Look at what he says. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, the gospel that makes us one, the center of the story, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, to put himself under the Old Testament law, though he was a Greek. You see, Titus understood that what unites us is the gospel, not religious rule-keeping. Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel and what it does in our lives together, Paul says, might be preserved for you. You see, this gospel community in the first century was under attack. It was being attacked by those who either didn't understand or chose not to accept what really makes us one, what builds community. And so Paul had to fight for it. 
He had to defend it, and he defends it with the gospel. He defends the community that the gospel builds with the gospel. And what, what we'll see in chapter 2 is that he'll, he brings people back to the center of the story and reminds them how, how that changes everything. And that's what we're going to work to unpack and apply in the coming weeks ahead as we work through the rest of this chapter. But this morning, I just wanted to make sure that we had a good foundation for this. I, I wanted us to look through this window and see how does the gospel build community? How did it build their community? And I wanted us to, to ask the question, is it doing that same work among us? Let me put it to you this way. If someone this morning was reading our story, if our lives were spelled out on the pages of Scripture with chapter and verse, but all part of this one big story, if this was our lives that we were talking about this morning, what would they see? What would they see? What would they see if they peered into our lives through a window like we're seeing here? In our text. What would they see in our lives? What would they, let me put it this way. What would they see in your life? What would they see? Would they see a life, a story in harmony, at the center of the story? Let me put it this way. Would they see a life changed by the center of the story? Would they see someone, praise God, who'd come to the end of trying to fix this mess themselves? Would they see one who'd come to the end of... I've come to the end of putting all my hopes in human wisdom and human ability, all of my hopes in me. I've come to the end of that, and my hope is in Christ alone. Is that what they would see if they were to look at your story? And would they see, would they see a life connected with all kinds of unlikely people? Is that what they would see? People who look different than you. People who are older than you. People who are younger than you. People who come from different backgrounds than you. People who have different struggles than you but people with whom you feel a deep connection because you love the same Jesus and you have the same hope. Is that what they would see if it was our life here fleshed out in Galatians chapter 2? And would they see that life connected with other people? Would they see that, that life overflowing into the lives of other people? Would they see you loving them, serving them? giving to them, listening to them, standing alongside of them when it's hard, when it hurts, when it's not convenient at all. But you're going to stick with them because you love them. Because Jesus loves you. Is that what they would see if they were to look at your life? Or would they see someone simply living for themselves? What would they see? What Galatians 2 shows us and will show us is that one of those approaches is in harmony with the center of the story, and one is not. One builds community, and one tears it down. So the question for you, question that I've been asking myself, what do you see in your life? What do you see in your story? Are you part of the gospel in community? Is that your story? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I praise you for the way that your word works. I thank you for this one glorious story that, that reminds us again and again, our hope can never be in us. We, we fail, we fail, we fail. 
but you have come and you have done everything necessary for our redemption. So we praise you for that. We praise you that the story makes so clear to us that our only hope is you. And I also praise you for, again, the way your word works. That we get these, these windows for which we can see people in real everyday life just like us. Embracing the gospel, embracing that big story of the Bible. And we see them struggle. They struggle. We see them walk in obedience. We see them rejoice. We see them change. We see them be different people. And I thank you for giving us that. So that would challenge us. That the Bible is not just this collection of pithy little spiritual wisdom sayings. But it, it shows us in real flesh and blood examples of how these story changes our stories. So I, I pray that the things that we've talked about this morning, that the Holy Spirit would be working those things in our hearts as only he can do. He knows exactly what's going on in each of our hearts. He knows the perfect application of these things. So I pray that he would be doing that ministry in us, helping us to see what it really looks like to have these connections with each other that aren't built on superficial things but are built in this glorious truth of the gospel that we, we love one another, we give to one another, we serve one another, not because of what we can get. Because that's not what you did. And I thank you for people like Barnabas. Again, not a perfect guy, but a real flesh and blood example of of a man whose life was changed and that overflowed into the lives of other people. I thank you for the Barnabases that are here already, so many in our church. And I pray that you would raise up more. People who are just so overwhelmed by you and what you've done, that they can't help but serve and love and give. And that as those things happen, you would continue to strengthen and build and protect and defend this community that the gospel creates. Work in us, Lord Jesus. Make us not just a bunch of people who come here on a Sunday, but people who are connected, really connected with each other in a way that images you, reflects you, and glorifies you. These things I pray in your name. Amen.